Uh, if you go to your Bible to Malachi chapter 4, uh, we've been talking for the last several weeks about being unstuck. Uh, Pastor has beautifully laid it out, and we've used some terms like being painted into a corner or being stuck between a rock and a hard place, and this idea of you're so stuck, you can't move, you can't go. But I want to add another layer to that definition of unstuck, because I think maybe a more dangerous form of being stuck is spending the energy to move forward and taking two steps forward and going two steps back. So you've spent the energy to go, but the aggregate distance that you've achieved has been zero. Uh, let, me, let me give you a, a case in point. Um, one, one of the things that you know about Pastor Brian, he'll tell you this. He's not ashamed to tell you this. He's proud of it. He says he's a redneck. He works with his hands. He kills stuff for fun, like, like hunting, that is. Not like, not like, yeah. So he loves to hunt, that type of thing. Pastor Barry, you may not know this about him. He's an incredible builder, very gifted, skilled with his hands. Pastor Gabe, I mean, he's got that skill set. Pastor Taylor, there's a ton of guys on our staff that they are men's men. And then there's me. Uh, I'm the guy that without some very specific instructions, I might not be able to get the batteries in the remote. So I'm, I'm, just, I'm just laying my man down card. You can take it because my man card. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not that guy. So oftentimes, because I want to be that guy, I get myself in situations where I'm prideful enough to think, I'm a man. I can do this. I got a beard. I can do this. So like, like a, couple of, a couple of Super Bowl Sundays ago, we shot this video from Dirt to Destiny. And Pastor Brian was in a field digging dirt, talking about this is not just dirt, it's destiny. And we had wheelbarrows of dirt on the stage. Well, here's the thing. I told you, I'm not a man's man. So we're out there shooting this video. He's digging the dirt, getting all this done. And this field, it's our church property, has cows in it. And the cows are looking over at us funny. And I don't want cows looking at me or running in my direction unless they got Chick-fil-A signs. And so they start moving this direction. And I jump in the back of Pastor Brian's truck. And I'm like, you're on your own. This video shoot is over. So because of that, I had to go back and get the dirt for the wheelbarrow. But I was like, I can do this. I'm a man. So I get in my car, and you need to know this because I'm a little angry about this. I haven't let it go. I haven't prayed through. I drive a trailblazer, which means if you drive a trailblazer, you should be able to climb up mountains in your car, drive on water, whatever. Trailblazer infers that you can go places where there is no road. So I drive out into this field, and it rained a little bit, not a whole bunch, just a little bit, and I'm digging dirt, got my headphones in, thinking, I'm a man. I'm, I'm digging dirt, like, yeah. And so I get the dirt in the wheelbarrow, get it in the back of my trailblazer, start it up. It starts, but it's going nowhere. I mean, I'm, I'm revving it, doing what I can do. And so being a man, what I think in my mind is, you know what, if I just press on the gas pedal harder, I'm going to get out. So I'm redlining the joker, nothing. Well, I'm too proud to call anybody for help. So I was like, eventually I'll get out of this. I sit down with my smartphone and start watching an NBA game on my phone. Think about how am I going to get out of this? Because I didn't want to call anybody. So Pastor Bear calls me. He's like, hey, what are you doing right now? Oh, you know, nothing. Just, just watching a game. Uh, how's it coming with digging the dirt? about that. Kind of stuck. So Pastor Bear comes out and he's got all these great ideas, putting cardboard under my tires, all this other stuff. I'm still stuck. Again, this is a trailblazer. We shouldn't have to do all this. It should, it should get itself out, right? Doesn't work. So we get the dirt, come back to the church. We have church. We have Sunday. We're all singing about Jesus. And all the time I'm thinking about my poor trailblazer that's stuck in mud, in a puddle of mud. It's not even like real mud. It's not quicksand. It's like a little puddle. So Pastor Gabe and Devin, who plays organ often, he, they take me back out there. They try and pull me out with his truck, but they can't get me out. So finally we call Trent Chambers. And Trent Chambers has this F-350. Let me, let me, let me put it in context for you. It's Optimus Prime. 
So Optimus Prime shows up and reaches in and pulls me out, and I would have been stuck forever. Okay, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. I would have been stuck for a while if something bigger than me, outside of me, hadn't stepped into the situation and pulled me out. Regardless of how much gas I had spent or how hard I was revving it, I was rocking back and forth, but I wasn't going anywhere. So let me put that in context because that is the plight of Israel. If you read the Old Testament from Judges to Malachi, it's this story of them rocking back and forth. So you'll see in Judges where they will be serving other idols and they'll get oppressed by enemy armies and then a judge will rise up and defeat the enemy army and they will praise God and then a few years later they're back in that same situation, worshiping the same false gods and under the same level of oppression over and over again. So then they move into a new era where they have kings and so you have King David and you have King Solomon and both of them are lights out kings. But then you get King Rehoboam and he sends people back into into worshiping false gods gods and they're back in that situation again. Over and over again, they're going back and forth. And even they would have revolts. There's a story of a a Maccabean revolt where a man named Mattathias said, you know what? We are going to be the people of God again. We're not going to be second class citizens. His nickname was the hammer. And so he decided he was going to start a revolt and they caught, they fought the enemy army. They reinstituted the worship of God, our God. And then a few years later, they were back to being second class citizens and worshiping false gods again. So when you drop into the book of Malachi, this is a people that are stuck that have been rocking back and forth, but the aggregate distance has been zero. Malachi chapter four, starting in verse one says this, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from a stall. I didn't grow up in the country. I don't know what that looks like or what that means, but the calves sound happy. (laughs) There is this statement that God is making that the wicked, those that are oppressing you, all of your own effort hasn't been able to do it, but I am going to send the son of righteousness, something bigger and stronger than you to rise with healing in its wings to give you redemption and get you unstuck. The problem with that is if you turn the page from Malachi, you have a blank page. For us, that's just a turn of a page. It's, it's a matter of seconds. For them, that blank page is almost 500 years. So you drop down into John chapter 1, and there's this, this moment where John the Baptist meets Jesus, and, and he gets baptized, and the heavens open up, and a dove comes down, and there's a, there's a voice that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And John is saying, behold, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And then the next verse that you drop into is John chapter 1, verse 35, and it says this, the next day again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for what is about the 10th hour. One of the two of them who had heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. His, he first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let me, let me put this in context because uh, I love, I'm a storyteller. And so I love giving you the fullness of this story. So John has just told them, this is the guy. 
This is the Messiah. This is the one that's going to redeem the people of God. He's going to make us be what we were always meant to be. He's going to put us back in covenant with God. And understand, John wasn't just some guy. John was the premier preacher, the most prolific preacher of his day. He was the one that pushed against the grain and said, you can repent and have a relationship with God. So those that were his disciples believed who he was and believed what he said when he pointed and said, I'm the forerunner for the Messiah and this is the guy. So Andrew and John, the disciple, hear this, and they see Jesus walking, and they follow him. They are stalking him. In my mind, I see like two little kids that are like trying to watch TV around the corner, and their parents not see them, so they're like, do you think they see us? I don't think he sees us. But there's, there's something wrong with this plan. First of all, here's the problem with this plan. He is the son of God that knows everything. He knows that you're stalking him. He knows that you're there. This is just a bad plan. Second part of the plan is because you know that you're going to get caught, you need to have something better than where you get your mail at, Jesus. Like where I, when I grew up, that was a what had happened statement. What had happened means you got caught and you don't have anything. So uh, what had happened was that was one of those what had happened statements. So, hey, what are you guys seeking? Uh, what had happened? Was, Jesus, where are you staying? Like, just stuck. They didn't know. So, so they turn to Jesus and ask him, where are you staying? What kind of question is that? If I believe that you might be the Messiah, you might be the one sent from God to redeem people's lives, I'm not asking you where you live. I'm not asking you what your living room looks like or, or what size TV you have. I'm asking you, if you're going to redeem God's people, what's the game plan? Where do I sign up? Where do I start recruiting army members? How do we do this? That is not the question that I would ask. And the funny thing about it is they ask the wrong question and Jesus still gives them the answer. Come and you will see. So Jesus invites them into his house. They're sitting in the living room. It's the 10th hour of the day. They spend all day together in this one-on-one close intimate setting. And out of that, I don't know what he said or what happened, but I know how Andrew reacted. He jumped up and said, I have found the Messiah. Now, here's the thing. We don't speak Greek. So let me give you a little bit of background knowledge to what he said. The literal words in the Greek is the word herekumen. If you saw herecumen spelled out, it would look like our word Eureka. Depending on how old you are in the room, Eureka either makes you think of the land before time, the movie, or it makes you think of the 1840s gold rush. So, let me, so let's work with the, the usable definition, the 1840s gold rush. So those men would go out into the hills of California and they would be looking for gold. And so they would get their little pan and they would begin sifting dirt and water and they would probably come up with nothing and maybe some rocks. And so then they would grab another layer and they would sift dirt and water and hope that something would come up and they would get nothing and, 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 or hope they would get something and they would get nothing. And they would grab maybe another pile and they would begin to shake. And then they would see the gleam of golden yellow. And their reaction would be like, hey guys, I, I found some gold over here. Their reaction would be, Eureka, I found gold. Hey, God, Eureka, I found gold. So there's got to be an understanding of the way that Andrew said this. He didn't walk out of the house and be like, hey, Peter, I know you're busy tending to your nets and your fish and all that good stuff, but uh, just by chance, I may have found the Savior of the world. His response was, Herecumen, I found him. What we've been waiting for for 500 years, what we've been learning about and praying about and hearing John talk about, he is here. I have found the Messiah. This is the greatest thing ever. Drop what you're doing. Forget the rest of it. I found him. And it was this, this 
epic reaction from this small setting because you've got to understand that they heard the same sermons that the Pharisees heard, but the Pharisees never reacted to Jesus this way. When the Pharisees got around Jesus, they got frustrated with him. They would say, who do you think that you are? We can't let all of Israel die for just this one man. They had plots and plans thinking, they asked him, are you of the devil because you're canceling out evil? They had issues with Jesus because they didn't know who he was. Now these 12, they didn't get it all right, but they knew who Jesus was. So in situations like John chapter 6, let's drop in there. Jesus has just fed the 5,000, just done some great miracles. And all these people had gathered around him and said, hey, we want you to feed us again. We want you to prove yourself again. He said, you only come to me because you want me to fill your stomachs. But if you really want to be committed, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody's like, that is the weirdest sermon ever. I'm out. And so everybody bails, thousands of people bail, and you've got 12 people, the 12 disciples sitting around him, and Jesus in a vulnerable moment says to them, do you want to leave also? And Peter steps up and says, where else can we go? Who else has the words of life? We don't got all this figured out, but there is none but Jesus for me. You are it. We believe that you're the Messiah. It's the same thing that happens in Matthew chapter 16 when he's having a conversation with them. He says, well, who is it that men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're Elias and some say that you're John the Baptist returned. He's like, okay, that's good. But what do you say that I am? And Peter steps up and says, you are the son of the living God. There can be no one else. They didn't get it all right, but they understood who he was. And it dares to beg the question that if the sermons on the side of the mountain didn't do it, what was special about that small group community experience that happened in the house? I would dare say to you that as much as what happens here is important, he can only flesh out what he does in your heart through community. So let me, let me give you some examples because I know that I am a young man. I know that there are people in this room that have lived through more trial and have had to live more ferociously than I have, but there are moments in my life when I have felt stuck. There have been moments in my life where I needed to find him again. I'll give you an example. A few years back, this is not the most spiritual thing in the world. I'll just be honest with you. You don't know this about me, but I love pro wrestling. There is something about somebody getting hit with a steel chair that just does it for me. I don't know. I see the glory in that. And so... I love pro wrestling, and one of our students, his, his name's Trevor Beck, he loves pro wrestling. And so some of you laugh because you know Trevor. You're like, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's Trevor. So they were down in the AAC, and I was like, hey, we need to go watch this. And it was one of those weird experiences where you're in the stands screaming because somebody just got hit with a steel chair, and you're hugging people that you don't even know, like, yes! Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it, it just does it for me. Anyway, so we have this experience. What Trevor didn't know at the time is that I had just had a close family friend die, and I had just gone through a, just a relationship had been severed, a friendship, a relationship had been severed, and I was, I was just struggling, just felt alone, just wanted to pack up my stuff, get in my car, drive back to Oklahoma, and forget about all this. So that next day after we had gone to the wrestling event, we went to youth camp, and we're hanging out at youth camp, and it was one of those services where you're just... You just, God moved and your natural reaction is to love one another. It didn't matter that you had put a rat in somebody's shoe. You just turned and hugged them and told them that you loved them because God was doing something in that moment. And so there was this, it was that moment and Trevor turned and looked at me and he said, I know this probably doesn't mean a lot to you, but Sunday when you went to that event with me, it was like, you were like my dad. He would have done that with me. You were like family to me. He didn't know that that's what I needed to hear because I felt so alone and so broken and I felt so stuck. I'll be honest with you that doing ministry can be dangerous because oftentimes it can become what you do and not who you are. 
So you just kind of go through the routine. I'm supposed to be here at 830. I'm supposed to leave at 430. That's the way my day works. I'll do what I'm supposed to do. And sometimes you just get stuck. So there was a a young lady in our, in our young adult ministry, her name's Abby Davis. And, and during one of those time periods in my life, she had the unfortunate experience of going through a stillbirth. And I'll tell you, there is no roadmap for walking with somebody through that. But as that was happening, I was still in just this spiritual malaise. I was just doing, I was doing what I do, but it wasn't, it wasn't in my heart. We were having a worship audition and, and Abby said, I want to try out for the worship team. We randomly picked two songs. We picked Rain Down by Delirious, and we picked You Are For Me by Carrie Job. So we're sitting here, and as, as, a, as somebody who is judging whether somebody should be on the team, you try to hide your pleasure or displeasure in their ability or inability to sing. So she's leading, or she's singing the song, and she goes into You Are For Me, and I'm watching her sing this song, and I'm hearing what's coming out of her mouth so faithful, so constant, so loving, so true, so powerful in all that you do. And by the time she gets to the chorus and she begins to sing, I know that you are for me. I know that you are for me. I know that you are able, even in my weaknesses, you never forsake me, even in my weaknesses. I want to weep and scream because I felt like God's telling me she can praise me, even though she went through a year of struggle and you're not going through anything. And I'm just a decoration, an option for you. Remember who I am. I found him through that experience. I, I, even more recently, there in our young adult ministry, there have been two young ladies who, just, who came to me and they said, I want to teach a small group on the book of Job. And the book of Job is a complex, deep, and long book. And, I, and most of the time, I'd be like, maybe we should push back from that. Maybe we should go something a little bit easier, something a little bit more short term. But I thought about these two ladies, and one of them, one of the ladies, Dawn, had walked faithfully with God and compassion, giving to others when oftentimes she was worried about if she had enough for herself because she was living without a job. The other girl named Deidre has, has just been diagnosed with cancer, and she said to me, if I can be faithful to God in my suffering because he's faithful to me, I ought to open up my life and show it to somebody else. And the reason I tell you those stories is maybe the best way I communicate it is not even telling the stories, but the short form is this, I found him. And those experiences, when they opened up their lives and said, hey, it's not just about the sermon on the stage. It's what God's flushing out in my heart. I found him. I found him with Trevor at a wrestling event. And I found him when Abby decided that she was going to lead in spite of her pain. And I found him when Deidre and Dawn said, we want to show that God is faithful even in the midst of suffering. I found him in community. And maybe you're sitting here and you need him. Maybe you're sitting here and you're hearing this, you're saying, it sounds good, but I'm so stinking different. Nobody's been through what I've been through. Nobody's walked through my trial. Nobody's had my pain. I'm going to grant to you, you may be different, but let me give you a little bit of science. Do you know how the human body works? We have places called joints, and there's a couple of types of joints. There are joints that are two completely different bones, like your shoulder, like your hip. It's a ball and socket joint. One, one end is a receiver, and the other end is completely different, and they just fit together. And while there's muscles around it, the tendon that holds it together is called the labrum. Just one thing that holds two drastically different bones, apart, bones together. Then you have like your knee, which are two bones that if you looked at an x-ray look exactly alike. But to hold your knee together, you've got your meniscus pad in between so they don't grind each other to shreds. You've got your medial collateral ligaments on the side. You've got your anterior cruciate ligament, and you've got your posterior cruciate ligament. And all that junk has to be in place to hold your knee together. So for a 
Two bones that are exactly alike, it takes a whole lot to keep them together. But for two bones that are nothing alike, it takes one little tendon. And can I tell you that maybe you are different, but the only thing that holds this body together is Jesus and Jesus alone. We don't need a lot, but as long as we got him, we can be together. So community works not because of who you are, because that was the issue with the Pharisees. They had an issue with Jesus because he didn't do their customs. He didn't act the way they act. Can I tell you that if you can only be around people like you, that is the height of all arrogance. But to believe in the difference and the power of difference, creating community, that opens up the story of what God is doing in us. So maybe, maybe you're sitting here, I'm broken, I'm going through a bitter divorce. Hey, there's a community of people who could say, I found him and he worked for me too. Maybe you're here and your family is being shredded apart by alcoholism. And you're trying to fight this thing by yourself. There are people in this room who have walked through the same thing. And what they would tell you is, I found him. He still works today. Maybe you're a parent and you've got kids that you're trying all that you can to get them to walk in the way that you want them to walk. And you've done everything. You've prayed. You've cried. You've put them in youth groups. You've taken them to counseling. And it's not working. And you've tried everything that you can. Can I tell you that there are parents that have walked through that? And then Jesus showed up. And all they could say is, I don't know how he did it, but I found him. Maybe you're here. And you're on the outside looking in. Can I tell you that this is not, wasn't enough for the Pharisees and it's not just enough for you, for him to flush it out in your heart. You have to be in community. The other part about it is this. I love Andrew's natural reaction. He experienced Jesus and then he felt like he was sent to go tell somebody else. That's why the vision of North Place Church is what it is to experience Christ like Andrew did, experience community like Andrew did, and then to live experiencing compassion. You want to stay unstuck? One of the ways to unstuck is to have enough of a community around you to pull you out when you can't do it on your own. The other way to stay unstuck is to not get still. If you get still in what Jesus did for you, you are stuck. But living in compassion is this idea that as I found him and he did it for me and I know Peter over there that needs it and I know her over there that needs it and I know him over there that needs it. Let me run and bring them to Jesus. Literally the text said he went and ran and got his brother and brought him to Jesus. There was this understanding, I have found him. Now I must live sin and bring somebody else back to him. And I understand most of the time when we think compassion, we think event, we think go to this or get on a plane and fly to a foreign country. When we think Matthew 28, we think go into all the world. But let me expand your definition. It does mean go, but it also means as you go. So living sent and staying unstuck means as you walk out of these doors. If you see a single mom with multiple kids and a baby carrier and she's trying to struggle to get through the doors, as you go, show compassion, open the door and carry the carrier for her over to the nursery. It means as you go, as you walk through life, as you walk through your neighborhood, maybe you have that cantankerous neighbor that you can't stand, that they're always messing with you. Maybe you show them the grace and love of Jesus by doing something that will make them drop their jaw when they, when they say, why did you do that? All you have to say is, I found him. I don't know what as you go is for you, but I do know to stay unstuck, you can't stand still. You must live sent. So I want to encourage you today. I want to challenge you today. 
for us to stay unstuck. We need each other. You are handed a small group catalog. That catalog is not just a bunch of pieces of paper with some information on it. It is an opportunity for you to position your heart for Jesus to flesh out in community what you've been hearing on this stage. It's not just this thing that we do. It's vital to our faith. Can I be honest with you? We don't naturally gravitate towards holiness. We don't. Like, it's just like you don't necessarily naturally gravitate towards being in shape. Like some people really, really, really like to run. They're crazy. <laughs> I say, and I used, to be, I used to be a runner. I just like being faster than people because I can't fight. That's what it was. <laughs> But that's a discipline. That's like, I'm going to wake up every day and I'm going to run this amount of miles and I'm going to be in shape and I'm going to change the way that I eat. It is a committed discipline. Nobody's just like, you know what? I feel like mar- running a marathon today and just goes out and do, does it. You've got to work towards that. Well, the same thing in our spiritual growth. You don't just gra- gravitate towards the next level of what God's doing. Oftentimes you get stuck and you burn a lot of energy and your trailblazer rocking back and forth and not going anywhere. And sometimes you need somebody bigger than you. You need a community bigger than just you to help pull you out. What that small group catalog is, is a conscious decision to say, Lord, I don't want to be stuck. Put people around me that can help me get where you want me to go. That catalog is also an opportunity to live sin. I believe in all that we're doing. There's, there's fellowship groups and study groups and prayer groups and, and all types of group, volunteer groups. But it's not just you're showing up at a group and learning curriculum or doing a study. You're showing up at a group and you're contributing your story to the mosaic of what God's painting in us. Your story is so valuable. And getting in a group is a commitment to say, I want to live sent. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. And here in a moment, I felt impressed in my heart to commission some missionaries that want to live sent. So here in a moment, we're going to stand and I want to pray and commission you. The spiritual application of this is understanding that in your heart, the story that he's writing in you, you own it. And you have the unique ability that whatever you've been through, and God has been faithful to stand up and say, I found him. You have the opportunity to be Andrew and run the streets and say, I went through this struggle, but I found him. Hey, community around me, I know we've been stuck, but I found the answer. I found him. That's the deeper application. But the practical application is going to be grabbing a catalog and finding a group saying, Lord God, Lord God, I trust you enough that by living in community, you can either get me unstuck or keep me unstuck. So I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. I hear people often say to me, they like to hear me preach. It's not because I preach good. It's because you get out early when I do. I'm glad I could serve well. Uh, I don't usually do this. I don't usually 
say, bow your head, close your eyes. And we usually, if that does happen, it's a response to repentance for sin. Um, But I'm going to ask you to do that. On a certain level, it is to not take the story of the grace of Jesus in our life and share that with the world. To not publicly proclaim that I have found him is sinful. But I'm doing this because it's between you and God. And oftentimes we get mob mentality. Here's what mob mentality is. You're at the Rangers game and everybody's doing the wave and you hate the wave. But you don't want to be that guy that ruins the wave. So you just, you do it. You're mad the whole time. I don't want you to see hands going up all around you. And so you say, well, do it too. I want to be the unspiritual one. I would rather you honestly commit to God to live sin or to not live sin than you just to do it. And then we have this rah-rah service, but we still don't run the streets and say, I found him. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm just going to ask you a simple question. I need you to know, Andrew didn't have theology major. He didn't lead worship. He didn't start a church. He just experienced Jesus in community and said, I found him. Are you willing to live sin? Are you willing to say, I found him? If you are, will you slip your hand up? Lord Jesus, you see the hands. And Lord, it's between them and you. But Lord, I commission them. I commission them like missionaries. In the same way in Matthew 28, you said all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. I commission them to go. I commission them to walk the streets and as they go, share their life, share their story, open their hearts, live in community, and show other people that are walking through struggles that they have found you. Give them the courage and give them the grace. Lord, if there's anything that I've learned through the entirety of this Unstuck series is that it has nothing to do with my ability. It has everything to do with your grace towards me. For somebody that's here that's thinking, I raised my hand, but I can't do this. Good. It's not up for them to do. Truth of the story is, you found us. But we proclaim it loudly that you found us. Lord, do that in our hearts. That we walk out of here as we go with a deep conviction in our hearts. That we will not be stuck being so focused on what you've done for us that we don't see others that need to be drawn in by compassion. But we become Andrews and we become Trevors and we become Abbeys and Deidres and Dons and we run and say, I have found him. Let me show you where he is. Do that in us. But also give us the courage to live open, vulnerable lives in community. It wasn't the big event in the sermon that changed Andrew's life. It was him getting in community with you and John. Do that in us. Flesh out in our hearts what we're hearing by putting us in community with you. I thank you, Lord, for that. It's in your name that I pray. If you're here today and maybe you need prayer, we have a prayer team of men and women 
that have found him. And they would love to pray with you and carry your burden with you. So I'm going to ask them to step out. And if you need prayer, will you join them up here to pray? If you don't need prayer, I'm going to ask you as respectfully as you can to walk out of here with a sense of knowing that you have found him. Maybe you need to immediately act on what God is asking you to do and you need to go to the small groups table and sign up. Or maybe there's some phone call that you need to make and tell somebody, hey, I know you've done a lot of stuff to me in my life, but I forgive you because I found them. I don't know what that is for you, but I do believe there's a practical application to what God's been doing in your heart over the last few moments. So if you need prayer, capitalize on this moment. If you don't, will you be faithful to what he's telling you to do? And will you live it out? We love you guys. We'll see you next week.